Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor Avi Creditor, joined today by SI senior writer Grant Wall and SI.com's Brian Strauss. Grant, welcome back from vacation. We missed you for episode two. We're happy to be back with episode three. Yeah, it's great to be back. Uh, I missed the U.S.-Mexico game last week, but followed from afar and uh, probably needed a week to recover from my Spanish language debut on Univision. But uh, Which was muy bueno. We are doing this podcast in Spanish, by the way. See. Si. Okay. Would be <laughs> Brian, welcome, uh, welcome back. Thanks, man. Episode three. It, it feels like we're like approaching sixty minutes territory here. It's pretty great. <laughs> we're we're well on our way, uh, guys. Get let's <laughs> let's uh, let's start with some Concacaf Champions League talk. Montreal Impact. We're taping this the day after they go into Azteca and come away with uh, you could call it a heroic one-one draw. Um, not much expected from this team. At Azteca, the fact that they're even in the final to begin with is is another story altogether. But they they enter the second leg of the CCL final with an away goal's edge. Uh, Brian, let's let's start with you. You wrote about this uh, for SI.com. Just your your thoughts on this team. You talked to Frank Klopas about the preparations. It looks like they paid off. Yeah, this is becoming a. You know, I'm running out of explanations for this. This is this is descending or ascending into. This is why we love sports territory. And you just sort of roll your eyes and, and, and appreciate it for what it is. This is, this is an incredible run. Uh, this, is a, this is the worst team in MLS. And this is a, this is a team that's been the worst in MLS for, for nearly two years. I mean, you know, seven wins out of 46 or 47 league games. Um, tremendous upheaval. Um, a lot of doubts about, you know, uh, the, the, the stability in the front office and, 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 and with Klopas and with the player pool. And, and somehow they have managed to... to to, to bond and to sort of find a system and an approach that has really worked for this tournament. Um, and the proof is there in the results. I mean, they're the first MLS team to, to, to win two home-and-home home series over Latin American opponents in the same competition. And now they're 90 minutes away from beating a third and, 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 and you know, the most decorated club in Mexico. So um, their composure and their resilience in these games has just been really impressive. They're unflappable. They're clutch. They finish the few chances they create. They defend well. They keep their wits about them, and 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 there's all to play for next week in Montreal. It's just astounding. It is. It is. And and Grant, even on Twitter last night, you called it one of the best stories in in sports right now. Just expand on that. I mean, it's it's wild to see a team that's so poor in the league uh, for a year and a half now, pretty much, go on this run. Well, one of the reasons we do watch sports is because you don't know what's going to happen, and this is one of the best examples we've seen with stakes that really matter. And for MLS teams, MLS has been pretty horrible in CONCACAF Champions League, have never gotten to the FIFA Club World Cup, have never won the tournament since it went to a league format. And now for what is the worst team in MLS to be 90 minutes away from doing that and going to the FIFA Club World Cup, it's just something nobody could have predicted. I don't know how much you could have gotten on you know, betting on the odds on this, but it would have been up in the stratosphere. I want to say something positive about Damo Duro right now because I've given Damo Duro a lot of static over the years, and he's probably deserved some of it. You know, so much speed, often a terrible, truly terrible finisher once he puts himself in positions to score with... 20 different MLS teams that he's played for over the years, but he was fantastic last night. You know, he set up the goal with a great pass that Dilly Duca basically dummied. Um, 
to Piatti for the goal early really set the tone for the game and and should have drawn a red card late in the first half on one of the worst non-calls I've ever seen as far as not giving a red on a dog so and the obvious joke being made afterward that it's never an obvious goal-scoring opportunity with Dom Oduro, ha, ha, ha. (laughs) But the fact is, they should have been up a man for the rest of the game. Now, uh, for this to be 1-1, obviously it's tough to to concede the late goal to America, but, you know, I I would say slight advantage to Montreal heading home. But as we know, we were talking about this earlier, Avi, Real Salt Lake had a 2-2 heading back home in the, the CCL final a few years ago, and couldn't seal the deal. No, and and their home winning st- or home unbeaten streak at that point, I believe was was in the 30s. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong. It was it was one of those things where you definitely felt it was their time. That was a, a great MLS team, probably at its peak. Granted, they were going up against a Monterey team that was in the midst of a three-peat. Little did we know, um, but they you know they lost in heartbreaking fashion. Montreal is pretty much being stuck together right now by. Band-aids, paper clips, chewing gum, whatever it takes. I mean, poutine. They, yeah, poutine. That's that is that's a a perfect way to put it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I I covered that game in Salt Lake. I, I flew out there like a like a quick out and back uh, for that match. And um, you know, we're we're impartial members of the media and all that. But I don't know that I've ever witnessed in person a more gut wrenching defeat. Uh, than that night. Um, Salt Lake played really, really well. Uh, the atmosphere was incredible. The sense of history was palpable. They had chance after chance, and it just didn't happen. And 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 the mood in that place and in, and in, and in that team after that slipped away. I, I still don't think they're over it, to be honest. I mean, it, it still comes up. Uh, you still hear people uh, around the club talking about it. Um, you know, to have that opportunity slip through their fingers is something those guys will take with them forever. Um, and, and so that's now what, what Montreal has. And, and like you said, you know, whatever, whatever it is that's holding them together, they lose, they lose map, they lose Porter, they, they go winless in their first four MLS games. Evan Bush may be suspended for the, for the second leg. Somehow this team fights its way through. And, and, and you wonder now if they've set a standard of investment and preparation in this tournament that other MLS clubs, if they claim to take CCL seriously, will have to follow. You know, Montreal has spent a total of three weeks in Mexico over two trips uh, preparing for these games and getting acclimated. That's a massive financial and tactical and, and, and logistical commitment that they've made. And, and it's hard to argue that it hasn't paid off. So we'll see if other MLS teams in future seasons follow a similar path. And you've reported that they spent, what, a quarter of a million dollars, basically, in, in preparations for this tournament, which is, you know. Just, on, just for this game. Uh, the, it was a quarter million U.S. just for the six-day trip uh, that, that they took uh, to prepare for this game. They spent 17 days in Mexico ahead of the quarterfinal opener against Pachuca. So, you know, if, if, if six days cost a quarter of a million, 17, you know, cost, you know, they, they've spent a million bucks uh, getting ready for this tournament and, and that, you know, charter flights and chefs and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's a it's a massive commitment. And, it, and, you know, people doubt Joey Saputo. People doubt the direction of this club. Um, and they still may flail an MLS and still may miss the playoffs. But this is a this is a sign that someone there knows what they're doing and, and someone there cares about results on the field. And the thing of it is, too, they don't even really need to do well in MLS to make this tournament. In fact, they don't at all. They, you know, they get in through the, the Canadian championship. They could feasibly just tank every single MLS season, stockpile the, <laughs> right. the USUC allocation, keep winning the Canadian championship and putting it all into CONCACAF Champions League. Now, obviously, that's that's not the way any club wants to run itself. 
But the the fact of the matter is, this team is going to have the back end of their schedule, their elite schedule, absolutely stacked. Yeah, I mean, I mean Klopas, to- Klopas told me when I spoke to him, he's, he admitted that they have not done a good job of of switching focus back and forth. Um, that their their performances in MLS haven't been good, and he and he was contrite about that. And he said, you know, once we're through this, however it happens, you know, we've played fewer games, uh, we'll have some confidence. Uh, fr- from this run and we'll be able to shift here. So, look, MLS is so forgiving. The season's so long. Six teams make the playoffs. There's no one at Montreal panicking right now about the fact that they're 0-2-2. Uh, they've got plenty of time to sort of reverse that course. Oh, for sure. And I wouldn't worry about about the panic of reversing course, but I would want, wonder about late in the season when, you know, they're, they're starting to play three games a week because MLS has, has helped them um, admirably, of course, you know, in, in the best interest of the league to have a team do well in this competition but you know they've moved games which they've done before for other teams but I don't think it's had to happen as much and I don't think anyone thought it was going to happen this much with Montreal um and you know you wonder especially if they lose in gut-wrenching fashion like Real Salt Lake did and you saw the hangover effect that it could have uh even now Garth Lagerway still talks about it he's at Seattle and, and he talks about how much winning that competition motivates him so you know you do wonder after the fact but the fact of the matter is this team is 90 minutes away uh, from winning the regional title, being the first MLS team to win it in this format. And Grant, that in itself is ridiculous. No, it is. And it's going to be a fantastic scene next week with a sold-out Olympic Stadium uh, and just a, a terrific atmosphere for that game. And, and now the stakes are going to be really high. I thought there might have been a chance that might have been a 6 nothing win by America last night heading into the game. And obviously it wasn't. So... Uh, anything can happen here, and this is one of those moments that if you follow soccer in the U.S., if you've been following MLS for a long time, you want to be in front of the TV to watch that game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, of, of course, they're fighting for a, a place in the FIFA Club World Cup. Waiting there will be one of Bayern Munich, Barcelona, Real Madrid, or Juventus. Could you imagine Montreal <laughs> impact against Cristiano Ronaldo and Real Madrid, potentially? Not a lot of Cinderella runs in the uh, European Champions League in their version, are there anymore? That's that's some aristocracy right there. There, there is some serious clout, uh, some serious silverware clout remaining in the in the UEFA Champions League. Um, Grant, I, I want to start with you because you watched uh, the two games earlier this week: the Barcelona PSG and Bayern Munich Porto at a bar in New York that happens to be the best place to watch, maybe even the official place to watch, if you're a Barcelona or Bayern Munich fan. Basically, if you're Pep Guardiola, you're never buying anything there. And if you're a fan of those two teams, that that was a celebration on top of celebration. Well, my favorite soccer bar in New York, and there are a ton of great ones here, is Smithfield. And it's a place that actually uh, was in a different location for a couple years. And Pep Guardiola, when he had his sabbatical year in New York, would come occasionally to watch. And it became the headquarters for the Barcelona Peña of New York City. It is also now the headquarters for the Bayern Munich fan club of New York City. And they actually changed locations to just about 200 feet from my apartment here in New York. So I went over there the other day. Barcelona and Bayern are playing at the exact same time, and the place was standing room only. And I actually shot a video of it. I was in the back. The Bayern fans were all in the back, packed back there, and the Barcelona fans were all parked up front, everyone together. And as both teams just ran roughshod over their opponents during the game, and and especially Bayern, because Bayern came in down 3-1 to Porto, 
and there was a lot more attention with them than with the Barcelona fans, but it became this amazing scene in both parts of the bar where you're watching both games, or I was, I was kind of focusing a little more on the Bayern part, but, you know, there's Bayern flags, there's, you know, people doing chants, it, it was just a really cool scene, and that's kind of what New York soccer scene has become in recent years and this city is so great when it comes to uh, seeing games live in bars all over the city and just you know the teams that play here now in MLS and the NASL and uh, I'm actually giving a speech to the U.S. Soccer Foundation next week about the growth of soccer in New York City and obviously the sport's growing everywhere around the country but you also have these teams investing more than a billion dollars when you add up stadiums and expansion fees for NYCFC, the Red Bulls, and the New York Cosmos. This is a really electric place to be right now for soccer. And for me, it kind of crystallized this week at Smithfield. Were Barcelona and, and Bayern fans kind of rooting for one another? Were they kind of focused on their own own thing? I'm almost kind of curious about the, the Guardiola dynamic, I feel like, kind of transcends over both. So I just feel like that's a, a really unique time with both playing at the same time. Well, there are some kinships, right, between the two clubs. You know, Guardiola's coached both teams. They also, though, for many, many years, both clubs have sold themselves as having a social mission, Barcelona being more than a club. Carl uh, heinz Rummenigge, the chairman at, at Bayern, told me once that, like, they see themselves as having a social mission. That's why they offer cheap tickets to certain parts of their stadium still, uh, below market value. Uh, and so... There's a lot of cool stuff they, you know, between the two clubs. And I spent a lot of time writing about them over the years for Inside the Super Clubs. Uh, I'm curious to see what will happen at Smithfield if they draw each other in the semifinals. Right now, there's a nice vibe in that bar. Maybe it might get a little more tense at that point. <laughs> now, if you're a neutral, Brian, let's, let's go to you with this. If you're a neutral, and obviously no matter what the draw on, on this Friday uh, turns out, it's it's going to be great. The the possibilities are are endless. But do you want to see Barcelona playing against Bayern or Real Madrid, which are the two more sexy matchups, I guess you could say, uh, in the semifinals when they get two games against one another? Or do you rather see that for the final? I mean, either way, you're going to get a final that's got an incredible team. You know, like we said, there are no Cinderella stories here. Whichever team ends up winning this thing is going to have earned it. Uh, how how do you prefer to see your Champions League semifinals? Uh, well, I noticed last night that uh, the, the Copa Libertadores group stage concluded last night, and I noticed that uh, Boca Juniors and River Plate will meet each other in the in the home and home round of sixteen. Um, so that's going to be bonkers. Uh, so of course, it brings to mind the possibility of Barcelona and Madrid. Um, they've done that before, uh, met in the home and home, but they've never met in the Champions League final. And so there's part of me that would like to see just you know the the universe torn apart. <laughs> um, as uh, as Barcelona and Madrid uh, play the biggest Clasico of all time in a Champions League final. I think that would be cool to see, and, and that would give you the opportunity to, to perhaps see a Barcelona-Bayern home-and-home, which would just be so intriguing and, and, and um, would be really engrossing stuff. So, you know, I suppose ideally, uh, but then I'm rooting, you know, for Bayern to lose, which I'm not. I have nothing against Bayern. So, uh, but that would be cool to see. It would be cool to see... Uh, Barcelona and Bayern go head to head in the uh, in the semis, and then if that produces a Clasico final, so be it. Uh, but I'm going to be watching from my couch. I, I don't know that I can do stand, standing room only bars anymore. I'm it's too much. <laughs> uh, 
that is Grant. See, okay, see, Avi and I, I mean, I'm 5'7", so, like, being in a standing room only bar, all I'm staring at is the back of someone. You know, and this maybe is the I point in the podcast it. where I, I bring up that whenever we have a picture taken that together, that Brian stands up on a step next to me. <laughs> yes, yes, I have a box. So, so at a standing room only bar, I first of all, I'm, I'm, my drink's getting jostled. I'll probably catch an elbow in the jaw, and I'm lucky if I can see half of one television. You know, meanwhile, Grant, what are you six eight, six nine? Anyway, like you can you can just peer over over the sea of heads and get beautiful views of TV. So it, it's it's a it's a shame, but I'll be on my couch. Uh, I mean, we should just uh, – the podcast isn't going to get any better ever, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll try. Uh, tying together New York Champions League, Thierry Henry had some pretty interesting comments to say after Chicharito scored Real Madrid's winner, a dramatic winner. I, he, he called him out basically for not thanking Cristiano Ronaldo for the assist first before he celebrated on his own. Now, for me, I think it's – asinine i i can see how one player who obviously has a pretty incredibly uh expert view of the game would would see things a different way but looking at a heat of the moment a guy who's had such a trying season his club future is is up in the air right now his international future i mean he hasn't really played all that well for mexico in, in the last couple of years and he scores this huge goal that that puts real madrid which is under all sorts of pressure right now, into the Champions League semifinals. Grant, what, what did you think of, of Thierry's comments? Well, first up, I think Henri is a really good analyst, really smart guy. He's shown that over the years uh, in talking to him about MLS. Uh, I thought he was out of line this time. I don't know where he was coming from. Um, you know, I have a ton of respect for Chicharito, who's gone through some tough times, hasn't played a heck of a lot this year. Uh, worked his tail off yesterday and got leveled, just hit the deck time and time again this entire game. And you know the way that Atletico defends, which is very, very physical all over the field, but especially in that part of the field. And he kept working, kept fighting, and got the chance. And granted, it was a good team goal, you know, nice nice plays uh, to, to lead up to it, nice pass from Ronaldo. Uh, I don't think it's a problem within the Real Madrid team, and therefore... I don't understand necessarily why that co- that point was made, but my guess is the Real Madrid guys are just really happy to be through. I would tend to think so as well. Uh, and if you're, again, like heat of that moment, I don't think, don't take anything away from Ronaldo. I, was, I mean, he set that up. That that was him. That was Orlando or winner Ronaldo doing his thing and being pretty unselfish, that close in and, and having the peace of mind to kind of flick it, toe poke it towards, towards Chicharito for the... The easy tap in, um, but come on, man. Let, let the guy celebrate. We got to do some digging and see if there's any bad dirt between Henri and Chicharito for whatever reason, because it, it just seemed a little ridiculous to me. Um, Maybe Henri thought that Chicharito's shirt removal and flexing game didn't match Ronaldo's. I mean, I mean, <laughs> to be no, fair, Ronaldo's always about celebrating with his teammates and not drawing attention to himself. <laughs> right? That's 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 the ironic part about about the whole thing. Uh, I think Chicharito's asking price to MLS just went up a heck of a lot, by the way. Well, that too, and you know, there are all sorts of reports that he's you know he's going to turn down any summer overture anyway to to stay overseas. But even if he didn't, I mean that. You know, there there was talk a few years ago about how MLS offered Didier Drogba what ten million uh, a year to come over. I you know that's that's the range I think you're looking at for for a player like Chicharito right now. 
Um, you know, granted, his year hasn't been that great, but you know, it's amazing what one goal does for your value and for your career. Uh, and and he, you know, no player needed that more than he did. Um, and it, it also, to me, it got me thinking: when was the last time a U.S. player scored a goal of that magnitude on the club level? And it's it's why you see Jurgen Klinsmann wanting so much his players to be overseas to get that that massive boost of confidence that one play can do. You know, you're not. You know, Josie Altador could score a great goal for Toronto this weekend against Orlando. It's not going to do anything near what that goal just did for Javier Hernandez. Might be Clint Dempsey against Juventus in Europa League, but that was Europa League. Exactly, exactly. You just you just don't see that. So it was a great moment for Mexico, uh, which could use it after after a couple losses. USA senior team, USA U23 team. Uh, and they've got a big summer coming up, so that's a big moment for Chicharito. Um Back to Henri, back to his former team, the Red Bulls. They're undefeated. Uh, Brian, you spent a ton of time with Ali Curtis uh, talking about his plan for this team, this famed 300-page plan uh, that was presented at a time when there was fan upheaval. Everyone was pissed off that they fired Mike Petke, brought in Jesse Marsh, had this town hall meeting where fans kind of aired their grievances, and yet here they are. They've patched together this this team that's playing very well. It's not that they're just winning. They're winning and, and doing it in a in a strong manner. Uh Brian, you have you've got some, you know, pretty intimate perspective on this. What's your take on on the Red Bulls and this plan? Uh th- th- there's always a there's always a difference between how things are perceived inside a locker room and inside an organization and and how they're perceived outside. And, and, and what I gathered sort of spending time up there and, and chatting with people in and around the Red Bulls and in and around the league was that the, the, the perception that, that fans and outsiders had of the Red Bulls 2014 season, um, Thierry Henry's role and relationship with his teammates and his coach, uh, Mike Petke's uh, readiness for that job um, and, and all that sort of stuff really differed wildly things were perceived inside the locker room. I mean, that was not, it was not a highly functioning, uh, you know, well-oiled machine. Um, and there were a lot of fractures and a lot of issues. And, and you know, and not all of that is Mike Pecky's fault. I mean, this was a guy who was sort of thrown into this job, uh, you know, very late, um, you know, and was able to patch a few things together and, and, and win what kind of in retrospect looks like an unlikely, unlikely supporter shield title in 2013. But, you know, his relationship with Henri and Henri's relationship with his teammates and, and, and the entire group's relationship with Red Bull and, and the lack of sort of an overall structure and plan and the dominating personalities of Henri and Cahill in that locker room, it just wasn't sustainable long term. And, and, and I, you know, and I believe that I, I, I you, know, you hear enough things to realize that, that there was not a plan in place uh, to, to carry the Red Bulls forward beyond uh, Henri and Pecky. And so. Um, Ali Curtis, to his credit, sold himself, worked hard and, and sold himself to Red Bull management uh, as someone who could put something uh, in that was sustainable and, and not only sustainable, but perhaps not as expensive. I mean, you can win an MLS without paying a player six million dollars a year, five million dollars a year. So, um, you know, he he has spent years and years uh, in, in, in the in the league office, seven years, I believe, uh, interacting with every club. Uh, learning what works and what doesn't, um, helping to write a lot of the regulations that teams have to negotiate, and, and sort of picking and choosing from from successful and unsuccessful organizations uh, what worked and what didn't. Um, and and he 
he was a fan of what Jesse Marsh had done in, in Montreal, and, and I think a lot of people thought uh, Jesse got a bit of a raw deal there, going back to sort of the typical upheaval at, at Stad Saputo. Um, and, uh, you know, the Red Bulls were looking for a, a new coach as early as last summer, well before Ali Curtis took over. Uh, they, they sought inter- permission to interview Caleb Porter. Uh, they sought permission to interview Greg Berhalter. Uh, there may have been more, but I haven't been able to confirm them. Um, so this was, a, this was an organization that months ago was trying to think about, okay, you know, we need to enter a new era here. We need to figure out a pathway that we can take where we're going to take advantage of our youth development, take advantage of our stadium and our training center, and try to win uh, in, in a way uh, that other MLS teams win. And so that's what's come together. And, and um, I can't vouch that the plan is exactly 300 pages. He did show me the big black binder. He did not let me sit there and count the pages. But he said it was close to 300, and it certainly was massive. Um, and it's very detailed and very specific and very ambitious. And so far, so good. I think the players really enjoy playing for Jesse Marsh. Uh, and, you know, they've got a great test against L.A. this weekend. It'll be a litmus test to see how far they've come. Did he triple space it or use a bigger font like I used to do in college when I had like a 20-page paper to do? <laughs> there were a lot of, <laughs> there were a lot of uh, graphs and charts and boxes. Um, you know, he came from J.P. Morgan. This is a guy who... Who, who spells things out, who puts things down on paper. He said to me, like, when you're at J.P. Morgan and you're telling someone how you think they should invest $30 million, you better have it down on paper. You know, you're not just sort of talking in, 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 in vague pronouncements. So, he's, he, I mean, it was, it was down to the, you know, here's how much money we should be expect to earning from transfer fees off of players we produce in, the develop, in, the, in, in our youth academy. Here's what we want out of left backs at 14 years old. I mean, it was very, very granular. And, you know, we'll see if that works, because right now, if you look at since Red Bull has taken over, this club has been up and down. They, they, they've reeled from sort of one distraction or controversy to the next. They have had some good seasons, but I think a lot of times those good seasons were in spite of, of the, the, the people they had in place uh, rather than because of them. And, and I think that Jesse and Ali have just brought a sense of stability. The players talk about having a better sense of knowing their roles, having a better sense of their assignments, having a better sense of what training is about and why they're doing certain things in training and the progression uh, fr- from, from talking about something to putting it in, in place in training to then seeing it in the game, guys understanding on the substitutes bench what their role is going to be if and when they go in, where they're going to be going, all these different little details that make players feel more comfortable and more, you know, feel like they have a better sense of control over the way things are going. This is stuff you hear out of that locker room, and that, that starts with, with Ollie Curtis and Jesse Marsh. So, you know, they don't have the big-name player. I understand that New York Red Bulls fans loved Mike Petke. Mike Petke was the identity of that club. They're used to seeing big names play for that club, and, and, and they have every right to expect that Red Bull eventually is going to spend some more money and bring some more stars in. But they needed to lay a foundation first, and, and uh, so far— you know, they've hired Ollie and Jesse to do that, and so far, so good. Well, I guess here's my question right now, and, and I think it's pretty apparent already that Jesse Marsh is an upgrade over Mike Pecky. Uh, and that's not to harsh on, on Mike Pecky or anything, but Jesse Marsh is a freaking good coach. Now, my question is, this is not the strategy that most of us would have expected or did expect the Red Bulls to have as a response to New York City SC coming into the city to challenge them and bring their stars it's kind of the opposite, actually. And is it enough? Is it enough in New York? Can they be relevant just by winning? 
if that's what they do without having a ton of buzz. And right now there's not a ton of buzz around the New York Red Bulls, even though they're winning. I You're right. There's there's not. Yeah, I would I would argue that winning is, is the elixir for everything. I think that New York City FC can have David Villa, Frank Lampard, and, and Mix Discard this summer, but if they don't win, I don't see Yankee Stadium being packed just on, on that star power alone, I, I think. And granted, they're an expansion team. You know, they, They've got to kind of work a little bit harder to, to generate a, a more passionate and, uh, and loyal fan base. But uh, you know, if the Red Bulls keep winning, they don't have to win every game, of course, but they keep winning. Bradley Wright Phillips keeps scoring goals, not necessarily a 27-goal pace, but maybe a 15-20-goal pace then I I do think that's enough. I, I don't know that it's enough to sell jerseys, but I think it's enough to, to bring people out to the stadium, and it's definitely enough to win a championship. Dax yeah. McCarty told me uh, that he was assured, and, and I heard this from Ollie and Jesse as well, but it was good to hear it from a player, uh, from, from the captain of the team. Uh, Dax told me that he was assured uh, that, that Red Bull was not shutting down the idea of, of spending money on a big-name player or two, um, that their priority was to first lay the foundation. You know, you add you. I mean, the L.A. Galaxy have a foundation, they have a culture, and then they add big names on top of it. And because they have a culture in place, they add big names who fit in. Robbie Keane fit in. He's produced perhaps the best foreign signing in MLS history. They're 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 adding something to some to to, to a to to a, a foundation that already exists. So. The, Rather than just piecemeal, rather than just, oh, Rafa Marquez will sell shirts, let's bring him in. Let's not worry about how we'll fit into the locker room or the system because he didn't fit into either. They're first building a locker room and a system. And then once they have that, they'll have a better sense of what players to go out and get. So I think some patience from the fan base, and I realize there is no more patient fan base in MLS. But first, Jesse wants to get his system down, get his culture down. Get 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 some movement between the development and, and and the youth team and the first team. Start to figure out who fits in and what sort of players the Red Bulls are going to be signing. Then they'll have a better idea of what big name DP to go out and get. And everyone said that eventually that's something the Red Bulls are going to look at. And if he's the right guy, the money's not an issue. It makes sense. That it also makes sense from a, a long term viewpoint. Uh, so we'll see we'll see what happens with them. And of of course, New York and LA. Uh, go head to head this weekend. One of the one of the good games on the MLS schedule: Seattle, Portland, Orlando, Toronto. A lot of good stuff coming up, um, guys. We're gonna head out of here soon. But one last thing we have to touch on, and that is the new U.S. Women's National Team home jerseys: the traditional white, black, and neon green of the USA. Uh, Brian, you are a master critique of uniforms. I would love to hear your thoughts on uh, on this new kit. It's look, it's white on white. It's not too different from from the last one, but it, it also kind of blatantly disregards blue and red, which are kind of important uh, components of the flag. But anyway, take it away. Well, you you left out Blue Lagoon, uh, which is part of the uniform. Uh, uh, it's in the shoes, and Nike's reasoning for that is is that it's a nod to the famous lakes of tournament host nation Canada. Because if there's anything that screams USA, it's homage to the fact that foreign countries have land and water. <laughs> but it's the 
way things are going. You know, I mean, it's 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 all about Nike. It's all about Nike's brand and 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 putting themselves above and over um, you know American traditions that have that have gone well before soccer. I mean, and 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 well beyond soccer. You know, red, white, and blue uh, have been the colors of this country since the 18th century. You know, you look you look at the uniform worn by George Washington and 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 the, you know the Revolutionary War soldiers. Certainly in sports, uh, U.S. national teams have always you know focused on navy blue and white with a red trim. You think about the USA Olympic hockey team. You think about the Dream Team. Uh, you think about the, the 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 World Cup team that went to the quarterfinals in 2002. The, the, those have always been our colors, and you know they started to steer away from those. Um, fans, U.S. fans, started wearing red, which I I find a bit disappointing because I've always thought that was a second very color should be navy blue and maybe white um you know and and then you know current current trends it's all about white and black and neon you know look at the college teams that appeal to they appeal to kids they appeal to college kids they appeal to recruits and every college football team no matter what their school colors are it's about all black all white and neon that's what's hip to kids that's what sells shirts and and branding is irrelevant. And so, you know, you can throw out this marketing speak like Volt Yellow and, and, and Blue Lagoon. But what it really is about is is people, you know, kneeling at the altar of manufacturers and brands uh, rather than appreciating the traditions of their country. So congratulations, Nike. It's all about you. I look forward to uh, following and, uh, you know, cheering on Team Nike at this summer's Women's World Cup in Canada where there are apparently lakes. <laughs> I love it. Uh, that was was definitely a segment worthy of a name. We're going to call it persistent infringement. And I think we might have to make that a weekly, <laughs> a weekly segment. Uh, that was, that was tremendous. Uh, so Grant, your, your thoughts before we get out of here, uh, just on, on the new look, me personally, I, it's, it's not very creative. I, I don't think, but in any event, that's, that's my take. Well, you. first off, as I wave goodbye to Nike, ever sponsoring the Planet Football podcast. <laughs> bye bye, Nike. Bye bye. Um, I will say this. There, here, I'll start positive. This is the first time that, that they've ever released a women's national team jersey that has men's and boys sizing. And I think that is something that should have happened probably a long time ago, but it's awesome that it is happening. There's probably very few countries in the world, if any, where that does take place. And I think what we've seen over the years, I've been to Portland, I've seen boys and men wearing Alex Morgan Thorns jerseys. We've seen that when the U.S. women's team has gotten big at World Cups in the past, like in 99 when boys would be wearing Mia Hamm jerseys. I remember interviewing the lead singer of Fish, uh, Trey Anastasio, that year. He had actually worn a Mia Hamm jersey at a concert. So I think that's fantastic. I'm excited about that. I think they'll actually sell jerseys to guys um you know people want to be associated with a winner i'm actually more optimistic than most that the u.s women are going to win this world cup or have a good shot at winning this world cup um that said the colors yeah i think the strategy that nike is clearly taking here the last couple years with the men as well is having one jersey that is very u.s color centric and then one that isn't so much and from what i understand the bomb pop jerseys for the men which also worked for the women, too, actually sold more than the not-as-colorful uh, or U.S.-colorful uh, jerseys. So uh, clearly there is the away kit uh, that the women will be wearing, which does have a lot of red, white, and blue, or at least a lot of blue and white, um, with a little bit of red. And then they've got this one. And I, and I think, I also thought with the sort of 
fluorescent sock thing that they've got going here, that isn't all that surprising. You know, Sam Borden wrote a great story for the New York Times last year about how few soccer players, men or women these days, wear traditional black shoes, cleats, out on the field. And if you look at a game, that's it's very rare that you'll see even one player wearing black shoes. And so... I think this is a logical extension of that, especially this is a shoe company, by the way, that they would produce something that would extend the fluorescent trend of shoes up the leg a little bit. Uh, so not altogether surprising for me. I'm not as bent out of shape about it as Brian is, but I love the fact that Brian is really bent out of shape about it. Um, and, you know, we'll see which uniform the team wears more often. Uh, it may just end up being 50-50 when the World Cup starts. I would say that the away uniforms, though, I mean, the, the bomb pop shirt is is almost all red, which, again, has always been a secondary color in the U.S. And then there's a, a bright royal blue. I mean, they look like Are you Russia like an anti-communist or, or something? Or You're an anti-communist. That's what your problem with the red is. I love the red. Again, it's, not, <laughs> it's just not American tradition. It's, it's you, know, we, you know, hey, we fought the red in the revolution, Grant. Don't you remember? This is, this is taking a, a downward turn that I don't I don't know that we want to take uh I'll I'll take the last word on this uh I oftentimes find that when I see photos of a jersey and then see it in action on the field uh my perspective changes considerably I thought the bomb pops for instance were just an atrocity and then you know you kind of grow to like them a lot same with the where's Waldo jerseys uh I love that we that we have nicknames like Waldo and, and bomb pops and we all know what we're talking about uh, so maybe that's part of the fun. In any event, uh, hilarious stuff. Good, <laughs> good, good talk, guys. Uh, thank you, guys, all for, uh, for listening so much. Again, as always, uh, for Grant Wall, Brian Strauss, I am Avi Creditor. We'll talk to you guys next week. Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.